up, Selketeers? Helen and Greg here. We are super... Yo. Oh, Greg, I'm talking. You can talk in a minute. I was just trying to appeal to the young kids out there by saying yo. That's a really good point. You're right. I apologize. I appreciate your, your attempts to widen our demographic. I was also trying to appeal to fans of Rocky, because doesn't he say yo a lot in the Rocky films? That movie came out in, like, 1970. That's true. Those are not um, kids. No, and today's episode is not themed around kids, and it's not themed around Rocky. It's actually themed around a pretty big guest. Yeah, our guest today is Mario Batali, who just, I mean, it's Mario Batali, guys. And so, you know what? Let's just get right into the interview. Screw everything else. Mario Batali, talk to us. Between rehearsal and production on the chew, there's usually about an hour, which in the morning I do meditation, and in the afternoon, early, late morning, early afternoon, I do some tweets. And then around dinner time, I always take pictures of where I am, but I don't always do it immediately. Like when I'm ready to do my tweet, I do my tweet or my Instagram, but I don't really, I don't do it all the time. I just do it like when there's nothing else happening. Does that social media mindfulness stem directly from the meditation practice and that feels like a <laughs> no I would say that the relief from the social media mindfulness is in fact the meditation which is to try to empty your mind to get to the bottom of your seat not to try to find the frothy bits at the top I love that people are always asking you for like, hey, it's my birthday. Can I get an RT? And you always seem to do it. That's like the nicest thing, though. I know, but it's not that hard. Like, you know, (laughs) for me, the more interesting questions are, you know, I got three pounds of moose meat. What should I do with it? And I'm totally interested in in participating with that. When they say, you know what, I had a meh experience at your vet restaurant in Las Vegas. I'm like, well, which manager did you talk to? Because if you didn't talk to a manager and you really want to, and then they'll say, well, did you talk to a manager? No, I'm talking to one now. I'm like, I'm not the manager because I'm not there and I can't fix it right now. I can see what we can do where we went wrong and I'll get back to you. But I'm going to talk to the manager to find out if someone actually said something was wrong. Because if they did, then we owe you something to fix it. If you're just using Twitter to tell me that you don't like me, I'm all right with that. But why don't you just tell me to fuck myself? (laughs) Instead of complaining about your linguine with clams, which I know are probably just as I would have made them, just tell me to fuck myself. In which case I'll say, maybe we should part ways. (laughs) Speaking of both fucking yourself and linguine with clams, um, (laughs) that brings us right to something I was really excited to talk to you about, which is the book Heat. Yes. Um, Which is the book that taught me how to make linguine with clams. Perfection. Because there is this beautiful moment in this book that was published in, what, 2004, 2005? I believe it is maybe, yes, it's either 10 or 12 years old. Oh, it is it is a, a robust pre-adolescent, yes. in, as the book goes, um, which is by Bill Buford. And it is this incredibly sprawling, phenomenally prismatic profile of you and your development as a chef. And there is this moment where he, as part of you know, the course of getting into your soul and your mind works the line at Babo. And oh, there was a long moment. A very extended moment. And he talks in this book about the process of making the linguine with clams. And I read it as an impressionable young person and was like, shit, I could do that. You can. And I did. Yes, and? And I became a food writer. Just out of that one particular dish? I ate a clam, and I woke up the next morning, and I was MFK Fisher. It just happened. (laughs) You're so lucky. You know, so many people (laughs) try with so many clams and never become anybody, let alone MFK Fisher or Helen Rosner. You're lucky. I'm very lucky. You are. Well, this is probably as good a time as any to introduce our guest on the Eater Up Cell today, Mr. Mario Batali. You know him from television. You know him from cookbooks. You know him from... His scads of restaurants in New York and L.A. and Las Vegas. Welcome, Mario. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored to be here in the hallowed halls. <laughs> yes, the very beautiful Eater Upsell Studios. It is nice. Godly it's a good decorated. part of town. There's a motorcycle parking lot on 6th Avenue in front of you. So you rode your Vespa up here. I did. 
How many Vespas have you gone through in your life? They give me one every year. Give you but one? But I give it back. I mean, I give it, you know, like I don't I have a collection. I have one from the 50s at my house in Michigan that was built in Vietnam, and it was gifted to me by a friend of mine. And it's a little harder to ride than the ones they sell to us here, but it's still a lot of fun. So when did the Vespa riding start? I'm going to say 10 years ago, 11 years ago. Once, once, let's see, once Babo, Lupa, and Oto were open and Eska opened, then I needed a way to get around town a little bit more than just walking. Because I could walk to Babo, Lupa, and Oto pretty quickly from my house. But Eska was a bit of an adventure. So now I just kind of get around that way in town. It's uh, it's economical. It is quicker. Like when Obama was in town a couple days ago, I saved hours compared to someone in a car. And uh, and insurance is only like 400 bucks because how much damage can you do to anything besides yourself on a Vespa? And it's also kind of a groovy way to get around. So I like it. I like uh, a la perto. I like feeling the breeze, even though you're wearing a helmet and sunglasses. What verb do you use to drive what, like, like? I feel I feel like the the word for a Vespa is like you tootle on it. Tootle, like I'm tootling around on my Vespa. I, I think I tool. You tool. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask the Twitter people; they think I'm a tool too, so it's okay. <laughs> look at that tool tooling yeah, exactly. on the Vespa. Look at that tool Vespaing around. What color is your Vespa? Right now, it is matte black. Ooh, which is kind of cool looking. Batmobile black. Batmobile black. You have a Batman pin on your Croc. I do. I stared at you earlier. You know, um, Adam West, the original. Uh, actor on the uh, non-cartoon, his birthday is the same as mine. Is that why you have the Batman? Because mm-hmm. I've always loved him. <laughs> He's great. Uh, that show was one of the funniest shows of all time. And if you look at it again, it's even funnier now because they were busting everyone's jobs. There was so much absurdity to it yes. in a time when I think like they, that original Batman show, I think, was one of the first entities that like punctured the self-seriousness of superhero comics. I believe so. I mean, it's gotten so self-serious though now. Well, Batman, Batman is now the yeah. most serious. Well, it's it's dark and angry now. Yeah. But are, as are all of the other ones, like the Avengers and all of those kind of Marvel things that translate, they translate much differently now. And it was never it, it's never seemingly for the good of society. It's more like for the own well-being of the creatures themselves. I think it's it's always sort of a mirror to the mood of the world, right? Like, mm. you know, the whole sort of idea that Superman originated in the what was it 30s or 40s because as this manifestation of like physical perfection and success from creators who felt alienated and ugly and imperfect and like we use these modern myths in order to soothe ourselves that there's someone perfect makes us potentially closer to perfection exactly angry batman gives us permission to be angry right so Mario, I've had the experience of dining, actually on multiple occasions of dining in your restaurants at night and seeing you actually come into the restaurant and go to the kitchen or go somewhere else. And I've actually heard from friends that they've had similar experiences. They were at Auto and they've seen you go into the kitchen and, you know, whatever, which is, I think actually, you know, uh, for somebody who has a lot of restaurants, for somebody who's very prominent in the media, that's pretty rare, I'd say. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what is like your average, what is like, how, do you try and check up on your restaurants a certain amount? Like, do you have a routine? What is your sort of MO for that kind of stuff? I have anything but a routine, but mm-hmm. I'm in most of my restaurants. Like I'm in Oto probably every day. I'm in Babo every day or miss a day or two. I'm at Lupa two or three times a week. I'm at Esca not so much unless Dave wants to talk to me because Dave's kind of the king. I'm at Del Posto twice a week. I'm at Italy five times a week, but it, it, there's no rhythm to it. Like if a friend of mine is in the dining room, I'm going to go say hello to them and I'm going to try to do some porcini or something for them. Or if people that I don't know but I want to know are in there, you know, and if there's really no reason other than 
keeping consistency happen in the in the kitchen all the time. I mean, you can pretty much tell just by smelling the air, whether the tomato sauce is right, whether you can see whether the dough's right in the pizza, you can see how thick the viscous the spaghetti water is in the in the boiler and whether they've changed it. Actually, now we have ones that filter themselves. So we don't have to worry about that thick viscosity that Bill was so enamored with by the end of the night. Now they filter and, and they take all that starch out. So but it's he easier liked for it us. So much. Well, he loved it, but he, well, yeah, I mean, this it, is the same passage as the linguine with plants. Right, exactly, section. He talks exactly. about how over the course of the night, like the it water just becomes this thicker. phenomenally like savory, gloppy. Right. right. And it, you could almost not wreck anything because you put it in the right place. It was salty enough. It was sticky enough to hold to the condiment so that it worked out and well safe. Yeah. So now it's a little less, but I think it's better for the pasta because it's consistent from 6 o'clock to 11 o'clock. Have you ever thought about selling pasta water? Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> I, 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 I would feel bad. I feel like you're the chef that taught everyone about pasta water, Yeah, though, yeah, right? but they can make their own. That's true. <laughs> like, I would assume that if they wanted to buy my pasta water, they're not trying hard enough. <laughs> like they should. Personally blessed by Mario. You could call it holy water. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right? Oh, like, add a sprinkle of it. That's silly. It would be nice in a scepter, though, wouldn't it? To pass it out when you're wandering through, like, a food and wine festival somewhere and hit the people with just the like little a, holy just water. Like maybe there's a little fountain in Italy you could just kind of fill up and then, right. you Bring know, your baby like, to it. Oh, yeah. And, like, yeah. Right. It's, it's salty. They'll spit it out. You can yeah. get a little baptism going on there. Yeah. We have founded a religion, guys. Right. St. DiCecco, the Baptist. <laughs> I like that. Perfect. It's the Eater Upsell's first official religion. Excellent. Adherents can send us money at upsell at eater.com. So you're in your restaurants all the time. And do you also eat out a lot? Do you check out what else is going on? Or do you yeah. spend? Yeah. I mean, I like it. You know. I try not to go to anybody's restaurant in the first three or four weeks that they're open, but every now and then you just end up at one. But, you know, I was at—sometimes um, they're not even new. Like, I hadn't ever—I'd heard of Red Hook, but I'd never realized what a splendid place it was until I went last Saturday and we walked by Brooklyn Crab, which looks like a crazy Mexican bar in Tijuana. And then we go to Hometown Barbecue, and it's just like—it's this amazing, delicious place in, in a town that almost looks like it could be San Luis Obispo. I mean, I was like, what? This is what? This is where? Why don't I have, like, I could live there if I had a 24-hour lunch driver to pick me up and take me to Manhattan when I needed to. But it was so fantastic. And the food was so great. And Carla Hall's opening like two blocks from there. Yeah. And Pock Pock is there. And I've just like, I've only heard about it. I never really went. So now I'm, I'm gastro- touristically interested in much more of beyond just the groovy Brooklyn. I'm thinking there's a lot of cool stuff to Queens that I need to discover outside of the 7 train. And like Arthur Avenue still always been one of my favorite places compared to the fact that a real little Italy here in New York isn't so real anymore. You mm -hmm. know, it's not really Italian, but Arthur Avenue still is. And you go to Randazzo's and then you go to the bakery and you go to Mike's Deli and you go to, like that's still really legitimate to me as opposed to the little Italy, Italy here, which has spots of shining glory, but not consistent shining well, It glory. sort of Epcotifies, yeah, you know? Yeah. That winds up happening, it's a super the case in New York, but it winds up happening in any city of a sufficient size with a sufficient sort of like tourist gaze, where like you realize people are coming for this one thing, like the right. vibe of whatever neighborhood, and suddenly, or over the course of many years, you look around and it's become Disney World, right? right. It's like not actually the old thriving Italian neighborhood of Manhattan, it's a facsimile of it that's catering to tourists. Well, that's particularly evident during San Gennaro. Oh, like, yeah. you know, like all of those little stands there, they don't really have a restaurant there anymore. They live, I mean, the Italians, God bless their souls, they got wealthy and they moved to Staten Island where they live in the country. So now who's next? I mean, there's, there's Chinese, there's Korean, there's all kinds of 
Asian culture that is kind of encroaching on it, which doesn't offend me. I think that it's all right that Chinatown's much bigger and more important now than Little Italy is. But if you want Little Italy, you should go to Arthur Avenue. I mean, that's where you find it, really. Yeah. As much as specifically like Manhattan's Little Italy, as much as it's not necessarily, you know, an authentic, authentic restaurants and, you know, old places, I still kind of can't hate on it because people love it so much. No, it no, makes I, people I happy. You know? I agree. You go get some red sauce at, you know, Il Cortile. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, there's <laughs> places that are still good. Nico's still good. I mean, there's great restaurants there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't diminish it. It's just it's not as consistent. Totally. As, it's yeah. not like you're walking through an Italian town. Right. You know, <laughs> like Arthur Avenue is. I mean, it mm-hmm. really feels like that's a hundred year old place. They could shoot the mafia here. I mean, shoot the movie, the mafia here, and and it would be all right. You don't want any mafia mafia getting shot. No, no, no mafia. But and I think also like you know the state of Italian food in New York has evolved so significantly, in large part thanks to your efforts. That you know there used to be a centralized place and everybody got you know eggplant parm and it had red sauce on it, and then you know. Poe happened and Babo happened and people started becoming aware of the regional differences in Italy and Italian food went through that extraordinary evolution in the American palate where suddenly like it was allowed to be fine dining and it didn't have to have hyphen American appended to it. And it didn't have to be only red sauce. I mean, suddenly, you know, the 21 regions of Italy became something that people would recognize because keep in mind, we were there helping build it, but Americans were traveling and becoming much more sophisticated at that time. So they knew the difference between Puglia and Basilicata and they knew the difference between the Veneto and Piemonte and that they could understand it and be perplexed and delighted by it made our job that much easier. It wasn't like I was had to break the choir and they were already ready to sing, you know. So it was a I was here at a good time. Keep in mind when I became a chef in the 70s, it was the last thing you did after you got out of the military before you went to jail. And <laughs> it has become a groovy job in that interim, not I mean not because of me, but because people started to perceiving their food as their entertainment. Mm-hmm. It used to be you went to the opera and then you got a bite or you went to the game and you got a bite or you got a bite and you went to the movies. Now the bite could become the entire evening for a group of friends who are gastronomically interested, uh, fascinated and provoked by the chefs or the experience. I mean, you know, David Chang came out of nowhere and put no backs on chairs and started doing fine dining experiences with really loud music. And it was just like, you know, this is very interesting now. It's no longer that I have to sit with my grandma's clothes on and, and pretend I'm refined when I can get something totally thoughtful, totally delicious and totally remarkable and gastro specific and geo specific here in New York City and what feels like what might have been a punk rock bar 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like other versions of luxury and high culture evolved way faster than food did. Like food was stuck in this Francophilic 1950s starchy waiter thing for so long. And then it was allowed to be culture. Right. Well, James Beard, you know, James Beard and his acolytes, all of a sudden we started to celebrate American food. And then someone went to New Orleans and discovered K. Paul. And all of a sudden it's like, holy moly, we got some stuff here. And then Jeremiah Tower and Alice Waters and Mark Miller and all the people in California started making food that was not pretending or apologizing. It was more like, look, this is what we got. We got Chino Ranch. We make these carrots. They're fantastic. Uh, We got these great abalone. We got sand dabs instead of Dover Sole. Like all of a sudden it's like, hey, let's look at us. And that changed everything. Like, I mean... I don't know if you ever went to Stars. You guys are probably too young, but Stars was an explosion of joy and deliciousness. And Jeremiah Tower and sexy food was suddenly a thing in San Francisco, not just where we went to eat and pray at the Temple of Alice Waters, which was also a great restaurant, but like Stars and Zuni and Campton Place, like those things, they made chefs groovy. And then Marco Pierre White comes out with, 
white heat, and you're like, not only groovy, sexy. Look at that guy with a sturgeon on his lap. I want to be like him. And all of a sudden, kids are thinking, wow, a chef might be kind of like an actor. And now we're kind of looking at it, and all of the Top Chef and all of the other TV shows have gone. Unfortunately, kids are coming out. They want to go to cooking school because they want to be on TV, not because they love cooking. And that's it gets a little sticky. There's a thousand jobs in it, but it's a little hard to describe to someone, listen, now you're going to be a prep cook for two years. And they're like, no, no, no. I want to be a sous chef in about six weeks. <laughs> It's hard to figure that as out. A, as a young Mario, as a young chef, did you look up to anybody where you're like, I'm going to be like that guy when I, when I you know, get Yeah, get I mean, there? I did a stage at Roger Verger. I did a stage at Mark Minot. I worked for Marco Pierre White. Like, I wanted to be all those guys. And not, I mean, Minot and Verger were kind of sexy because they had this kind of old world glory around them. Marco was more like a punk. And, and seeing and working with that, I think what picked me the most was that food which for me previously was just something to eat and pretty good and delicious in our family, you could present it and you could think about it in a way that would take it to another level. And Marco was the first one that really showed that to me. And he did these little tagliatelle with oysters served in oyster shells with this little kind of raspberry bear blanc. And it was just like, what the hell is this? This is so good and so challenging me. And it was just like, man, I wanted to be like that. So I withstood six months of abuse from this guy because I knew that I could take something away. It's, it's, almost illegal now to be that abusive. I think it actually is abusive. It is illegal to be abusive. But there's a time when you're learning from someone and you realize I must give myself to this so that I can take something away from it and then I can reinterpret it. Are there people who are cooking today who get that same feeling into you? Like when you eat something, you're just like, You know, Jesus. I would say that what intrigues me the most now is the confidence of a cook to let the natural product kind of sing by itself. And it's less is more. What I learned when I worked in Italy in Bologna was that as much as it was 1988 and I wanted to put smoked squab and, you know, grated calf's liver frozen on top of a pasta, the pastas that blew me away the most in Emilia Romagna were the simplest ones. Like it was pappardelle with peas and butter and that was it. There wasn't any smoked eggplant. There wasn't any trick. There wasn't a, a base of, or a nest of something. It was just perfect peas in season, the butter from Gufanti, which is the same producers of the, of the Parmigiano Reggiano, and pappardelle that we made by hands. And when you taste that, it's a holy shit moment. You're like, I don't even really like zucchini, but I'm having spaghetti with zucchini in Naples, and it might be the greatest thing I've ever eaten. Mm. Because it is so much about that, and it is so simple that it just knocks you down. And when you are traveling through Italy, you can go to Massimo and be blown away by his total thoughtfulness. But you can be just as blown away across the street at Osteria Giusti when they bring you fried cotechino with, uh, you know, zabaglione in the middle of summer. And you're like, what the fuck? And it's so good. It makes you die. How, how well does that translate to, like, not being in the most beautiful part of the most beautiful country? That's a good question because I'm not sure in Dayton, <laughs> Ohio, at the prison, I'm enjoying this dish as much as I am when I'm sitting on the Amalfi Coast. But you know, there, there are times when the juxtaposition of either a comfortable and beautifully curated restaurant doesn't really matter if you're eating something so good. You know, like when you're in Domelices in New Orleans and you have the best po' boy ever, it, it's not a fancy place, but it's kind of attractive because of what it is. It's not pretending to be anything else. And God bless her soul, Dot, who died last year or maybe even two years ago at this point, like that place was so quintessentially 
idiosyncratic, and yet it was so perfect. It was three ladies of a certain age over 65 just dusting the shellfish and seafood and throwing it in the fryer and bringing it out and serving it with nothing other than a smile and the best bread and the best crispy shrimp and oyster pobo. You're just like, I don't need a fancy restaurant now. I just need something that's authentic or specific to where I am. Yeah. I think something we think about a lot over here is like how how important is the food to food? You know, like, I mean, obviously it is a certain degree of importance. And so much of those po'boys at Domelisa's are about being in that room and right. about having, you know, gotten there through a neighborhood where you're like looking around, like I, I have left you behind the touristic sub- trappings right. of New Orleans when right. you go out to Domelisa's and, and the psychological priming that goes into getting there and then waiting in line and watching people go through this ritual and then sitting down and taking that bite, like... None of that is inherent to the sandwich. The sandwich in some way encapsulates all of it. Right. But like if you took that po'boy out and you put it in a sterile room and you put seven other po'boys from other places in that sterile room with it and you blindfolded yourself and you took bites, like your ranking of the quality of those sandwiches in your mouth would have nothing to do with your ranking of the experiences of right. going to these places. I wonder though in a blind place, if I had a Domelises versus a chain restaurant po'boy, I, I, I have to think you and I would know the difference. I, would hope I, I, so. I, I would think that that bread and the temperature, like the problem is you couldn't possibly do it in a, in a, a an empty white room because it needs to be that close to the fryer. It needs to be in that room that has a, a mediocre hood working over the back right. grill, right? I mean, like you need to smell kind of almost the old fryer oil, but it's not old. Like you're just like, I just smell heavy fryer oil. I don't smell old. <laughs> it's not like a Chinese restaurant in a bad town where you're like, oh my God, they haven't changed that oil in three weeks. Yeah. So it would be hard for us to truly measure the Purely physical response, even with blindfolds, unless you are in the right spot, because it has to be cooked right there. It can't be reproduced in in a lab at Tulane. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we'd be stuck. But there is something to like, you know, putting the the oysters in the oyster shell with the raspberry. I mean, like like that you could put into a sterile white room, and you could look at it and you could say, this there is something happening here, right? Right? Exactly. Like there's an intellect behind right. the decisions that you made in making this food, as opposed to something like a po'boy, which is an organically evolved dish. Right. I don't know where I'm going Or a jambalaya. Like, no, but I mean, like, you think. I mean, it's very easy for us to celebrate the cuisine of New Orleans because it is so specific. Yeah, you can make a jambalaya on the West Coast. But when you're in New Orleans or you're in Louisiana, it's just different because you're right. You've taken the 40-mile-an-hour, you know, whatever they call that kind of boat with a fan behind it. You've gone out to Donald Link's place, and you're in the place, and you're tasting it. And it's just like— I don't care if this is wrong or right. It's fucking right, you know, and it's because you're surrounded by that. Now, if you ate it at the University of Iowa campus and it was made by the same chef, would it feel the same, taste the same? Maybe if he flew up with a cooler that day, but probably not, you know. And the value of that, I think, I mean, Greg has spent a lot of time in New Orleans. I've spent less time, but a lot of time in New Orleans. You also presumably have like a lot of it. If we were sitting here eating the world's best jambalaya in this like ugly black studio that we're sitting in right now. For all of us, I think the pleasure would be in the memories that it triggers and the nostalgia. And then it gives us this like wormhole back to when we ate it in the right room in the right Right. way with the right people. It's your Christian moment. It's your Madeline. Yeah. So as much as you have these kind of rock and roll kind of downtown restaurants, you know, with this really exciting food, I think you and your your team and, and Joe and your partners created some really luxe experiences, especially in New York. Like I'm specifically thinking about Del Posto, which is- My favorite bar in New York City. Just 
It's I mean, cool. like there's no, re- as far as I'm concerned, I've never been to a restaurant that has service like Del Posto. I mean, it's the experiences on this other level, but also it was just at your newest place, La Sirena. And that was also this kind of luxe in my mind. It felt like being like at a, an Italian resort or something right, like exactly. that. Exactly. Well, that was our intention. You know, I mean, I think one of the things about La Sirena that makes you feel particularly good is that you're either outside or you're inside almost outside, but you're 12 feet off the street. So there is an elevated luxurious, almost a cruise shipy feel because you're above the fray, but you're in the fray, which makes you feel, it makes me feel good. And I eat a lot on the street in New York. I love sitting at Da Silvano or anywhere where I can get a chair outside because I don't mind the noise and the grit and the, and the stuff. What's a little different is the elevated kind of terrace there that makes it feel good. We spend a lot of time making it feel relaxed, but keep in mind, like all Italians, when you see them kiss each other on the cheeks and throw their jacket over their shoulder at the Rome train station, that was 150,000 days of practice. It's not, it, it, it takes a lot of work to look like it's effortless. And this that's is my favorite Italian word, sprezzatura. Sprezzatura. Sprezzatura, which What's is, that? it is the, um, the illusion of effortlessness right. when in fact there's a huge amount of work behind it. It's singularly my favorite concept in there the world. There you go. And that's, we're trying to get there and it's, you know, it's, it's a big beast, so it's not exactly everything, but it's, it will be in, in, in the, in the end of the first year. La Serena will be exactly as we dreamed it. And it was at 75% when we opened. And it's every day it crawls a little bit further forward. The food is where I want it to be. The service is almost where I want it to be. But the feel of the room and that giant cocktail bar that we've never had before, it's 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 enticing. I think it's groovy. Yeah. It's like. I love it. It's cool. We're proud Did of you, it. Opening these huge places. I mean, so. Del Posto, I think when it opened, was one of the largest restaurants in Manhattan. Yes, 28,000 square feet. Which is like many houses. Yes, right? many. I mean, like, like, it's like, it's four, an institution. It's like six 14 or seven big homes. apartments. Right? And then you've got your places in Las Vegas, which yeah. are in Las Vegas yeah. and therefore are legally big. required to be gigantic. Yeah, exactly. And so, and your other places in New York, though, are very intimate. Like, um, both in scale, you know, there's this, there's very feelings of intimacy at Del Posto, but like, how do you carry both of those in your head at the same time? The, the trick is to, I mean, we're only as good as our team. And the trick is to make sure that each of the team players understands the experience and the crucialness of their participation in the experience. And and even if you're in a big room, if you're with a captain and, and a back waiter and a bus team and, and and all of them are working together, you're almost cocooned. And that's the intention that we're trying to do at at Del Posto. And I think we're succeeding. And that is eventually how La Serena is going to feel. Although La Serena is still this kind of wide open place. When you're in your table and, and your team gets you and you get them, you're kind of protected not by any boundaries, but you're in a space where you feel like, yes, I can get everything I need here. I don't have to worry about what's going on over there. It's not like I'm at an L.A. cocktail party looking over everyone's shoulder. I can be focused on my table, and, and that's what we're trying to do. But that's only through the empowerment of each of the staff members to feel themselves as individuals, but also be part of the greater team. And that's really where you got to go. That was my experience at Del Posto was that I thought it was very a very relaxing meal right. because, like, it was uh, the service was so on it, but in this totally unfussy way. Like, I once you know, had like, a very aggressive captain and she made me feel like I was on trial oh, but it really? was in like a really fun way like I'm good <laughs> was she Sicilian yeah. yes I you know, know exactly, exactly what I'm talking, talking about, about. <laughs> and once once you've got her approval which doesn't take more than the right glass of wine then everything's good but she is adamantly 
opposed to not paying attention to what's going on. So she brings it in, hopefully in a comforting, eventual way. But she is very fastidious about what she does. No, the, the meal was wonderful. Oh, good. It was just very much a sort of like, oh, no, like I've, 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 I've displeased mother exactly. kind of thing. <laughs> right. I, I, I understand that completely. And, uh, no, I loved it. Right. And I love her, too. And, and I hope that everyone's experience is that at once, at first, a little intimidated or and then you realize She's really only interested no. in the success and of it our turns table. Out fear right. makes things taste better. Right. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It all works out in the end. Good. I'm glad. Del Posto, man, that's that's just an institution, I feel like. It's a it's, Ten, it's super Italian. Ten years old. Ten yeah. years old. Yeah. It's like the you know, anniversary birthday restaurant, I feel like, for right. a lot of people I know. A and couple of my coolest ever New York moments happened there. And one of them, you will probably be able to fact check this memory for me because I cannot remember. But I was there in the last two years, and the, there's a piano player at Del Posto. Um, for anybody listening who has not been there, it's a huge restaurant that has this central sweeping staircase, and there's a piano player upstairs, right? No, he's, well, he's on or the main he's, floor. He's on the main floor. Yeah. Um, but he's behind the stairs, so you might not uh, see him all the time. There's a hidden piano player. Right. And at one point, um, I was there with a, with a couple of friends, and we heard whispers from a table next to us, and we started sort of eavesdropping, and one of our, one of our servers kind of helped clarify and told us that Bert Bacharach had been in the restaurant yes. and went and did a session at the piano. Oh, yes. yes. He came in with Mike Myers. Yes, that was it. Okay, so I could not remember if it was actually Mike Myers oh, or Bert absolutely. And they were in, Aust- was they were in Austin Powers together. Yes, exactly. Oh. Well, they're friends and they're working on a couple of projects. And Bert actually played there. Now, there's a guy named Dredd there, one of our, my favorite piano players. There's three people that work there regularly. And Dredd, uh, you'll be listening and you'll be listening and all of a sudden you'll hear in the background... Da, 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 da. And you're like, he's playing Led Zeppelin. He's playing a Led Zeppelin song right now. And he'll he'll play cashmere all the way through in a way that is almost inobtrusively so hip. You're dying how great it is. And yet for 80% of the customers, it's just a beautiful tinkling piano noise in the background. And you're like, oh my God, this is even cooler than I ever imagined. I, I, it's just magical. Yeah. I don't know. What a detail, yeah. yeah. And the Vespers <laughs> have gold leaf on them. Yes, they do. Just and like, those Vespers are the right thing. Oh my God. They Our are cocktail ex- bar is pound for pound as interesting as any of the groovier Eastern Village members of the society. <laughs> I, I think it's really cool. But it is not cheap. It is not... Uh, it's not as uh, sneaky as some of those, uh, whatever the place where you have to go through the hot dog stand at the, at the crib bar to get in. So as someone who has fine dining restaurants, do you check out, like if there's a new, you know, place that's serving a tasting menu, do you or your partners check it out or you like? You know, of course do I do. Yeah. I was at Gunter Seeger last week. Fantastic. I am experience. so curious about that. Place. It is. You, you walk in first of all, and it it, it it looks like you know it's next to Fatty Crab. You're like, what the hell? I'm walking in. You walk in. You're on another planet. You've entered the the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. The music is slightly loud, but it's weird classical curated music. And then there's ELO. And then there's Led Zeppelin. And and the kitchen's in the back, and you meet Gunter. Everyone has to go say hello to the chef, which I think is kind of cool. And then it's a 14 court. You know, very much you know wherever the all the stars are headed these days. It's 14 courses. You can either do pairings. You have to pay in advance on talk, T-O-C-K, which I thought was kind of cool because the idea of getting to a meal and not having to argue with your friends or anything and getting out like at an Uber and being done is – I like that. I don't know if how it deals with the tip. Yeah, I didn't I didn't even realize that. That's yeah. very like I, – I love it in theory. Like I 100% completely adore it in theory, the idea of prepaying for your restaurant right. meal. But then – it turns out one, every time I've experienced it, I feel like 
I have missed that punctuational moment at the end of the meal that comes with like the gesture of getting the, sh the check, sending it back, getting it back, signing it and like sort of it's like a it's a denouement to you know right. it's like it's a nice well, way here, of signaling here it works because i'm not one to not drink so i only paid for my food so i got a check for the wines that we drank i tipped on that just even though they oh. tell you not to tip i'm a tipper i like tipping and it I'm doesn't make me feel like big you, or yeah. important it's just i like the generosity of tipping so i put a tip on there and they're like sir that's not required i'm like you know what let's just let it slide all right it feels good for all of us doesn't it but it turns out, I guess that's the secret is I just have to drink more. Right. You need to drink more. You need to. <laughs> well, even if you do the pairings, that isn't included in your original check. So you, you end up paying anyway. Perfect. I felt good. About I've solved my problems. Yes, exactly. It all lies in a bottle of wine. So I go to a bunch of restaurants as often as I can. And uh, I went to Blanca like a month ago. And that, that's not a new restaurant, but it was the first time I ever got to see Carlos's food in that environment. And it was fantastic and delicious and well-paced and just, I mean, you know, there's so much going on in New York City. It is such a great town to be in. And by no means is it the only town in America where groovy stuff is going on right now. So mm -hmm. we're, in, we're, in a, we're in the renaissance right now of the restaurant experience for both guests and chefs in a way that there's a thousand ways to find, so many ways to get or give pleasure that are equally provocative and equally simple to do. And, you know, you go to Bouvet, and then you go to Via Carota, and then you go to Maialino, then you go to Carlo Maracci, and it's just like, wow, this is, there's so many things going on in this fabric. It drives me crazy. I'm How do you find the time? Like, seriously, I mean, you, so you're, you're on a TV show, and you write a billion cookbooks at once, and you have uncountable restaurants, and you appear on extraordinarily good podcasts like like this one like this one exactly. for example like seriously how do you, how do you fit it all in i am a very good manager of my time i don't waste a lot of time but i do sleep almost every day i uh <laughs> i work in unusual times when i'm traveling that's when i write my books uh, i go to the restaurants almost every day or every day uh, i go through italy every day and as long as you kind of understand that if you categorize or departmentalize your day and say, I'm going to spend an hour at Otto. And maybe everything won't be 100%, but the marching orders have been made abundantly clear at, at, at one hour. Then I go to Babo and I'll be there for two hours and I'll watch the service and I'll see, is there, a, is there a bottleneck somewhere? Are we not getting our desserts out in time? Are the appetizers too slow? And we evaluate every single detail. At Babo, once your order has been put in on the computer, if your appetizer isn't on the table in eight minutes, we have a red flag. Because we need it to happen in eight minutes. It's like those screens at McDonald's. Right. Well, we don't have those. We just have people, and we're looking at the tick. And I can go in, and I can, and when the expediter, Frank uh, Frank Langello, the executive chef, he'll write when the appetizer went out. And I can go in, and I can look at seven tickets in a row. I can see whether it looks like, oh, there might have been a little long. Maybe they overwhelmed us with tickets at one point, or we weren't ready at one point, or we they ordered long. You know, if you order a bucatini, First course, it's a 10 and a half minute cook, so it can't possibly be out for 11 minutes. But other than that, all of the other things have to kind of be in order. And I can see that and I can sense that when I go to the restaurants. Is there something that we're doing wrong? Are we not addressing the concerns of our customers? Are we not getting the food out fast enough? Or is it possible that food came out too fast? You know, and if someone's really languishing over their first course, we have to make sure that we don't fire it until they're ready. But we also have to pay attention that there's 17 other tables and we got to get moving along here. So it's, you know, we manage it and we think about it all the time. But the success of my time is that each of the, like we didn't decide to open 28 restaurants. We decided to open a restaurant at, called Babo. And then because Mark Ladner was so good, we opened Lupa. 
And because Mark and Zach were so good, we opened Otto. And because Dave Pasternak was so good, we opened Eska. And each one of the restaurants is built on the fact that a general manager who was at a, a number two somewhere else and a chef who was a number two or a wine director who was a number two, it was either they're going to reach the ceiling of our place and they're going to go work for Danny Meyer or they're going to go work for Drew Perron. So as opposed to letting that happen, we said, listen, if you guys want to put together some money or some ideas or some thoughts, we will become your partners. So in each one of my restaurants, there's a chef partner and a general manager or wine partner. And they're always constantly worried about whether they're doing the right thing. So we talk in candor about our flaws or our, our mistakes or our customers' dissatisfaction, provided they tell us. If they just tweet us, we kind of try to figure out how to deal with <laughs> it. But basically, if they talk to us about it, we address it immediately. And we have, you know, biweekly, every twice weekly meetings with the general staff about how to address what we think may or be going right or may or be going wrong. We generally spend more time on what's going wrong, but we always are very careful to make sure everyone knows that even on a bad day, we're still doing a good job. You're like a general. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this sounds like military strategy. Well, it kind of is, or or sports strategy. I mean, you know, the from each or from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. Like we have to answer it in that way. And when you have 4,000 employees, you have to figure out a way to make them all feel good and em empower them to make decisions that they're capable of making right at the moment of the fire. Are you a CEO? I I'm not sure what I would call myself. I think I call myself uh, a chef owner partner. COP. COP, You're a cop. A cop. <laughs> You're just a cop. <laughs> I'm just a cop, but a happy cop. And you know, a good cop can take a bad situation and make it work out for everyone in the neighborhood. This is a good metaphor. Yeah. This that works really well. Metaphor. Well, Mario, we've come to that part of our show called the lightning round. Fantastic. So we're just going to ask you some questions. And you can say whatever you want. Yeah. Let me take a really. sip of water. Mario Vitale drinks a glass of water. A third of a glass. What did you just drink? No. <laughs> um, Describe the water using the New language York of fine wine. tap water, I'm hoping. <laughs> um, Mario, if you were alone in a convertible driving down a long open road with music blasting and you were singing along at the top of your lungs, what song would it be? What have I been most excited about this week? Oh, that's not much of a lightning round, is it? Um, I would say Allman Brothers. Do you ever go see the Allman Brothers? Of course. Like 50 times. I mean, they were here for a month every year for like the last 10 years. And then for the last two years, they kind of haven't. They... Have they ever been into your restaurants? Yeah, of course. Yeah? Yeah. That's one thing I know. The Allman Brothers always go to good restaurants and they come to New really? York. Yeah. They're, they're good eaters. And, and, you know, a lot of musicians, it's changed. Now, it used to be kind of whatever. And then, you know, like Metallica started coming in and Rush. And you're like, what? And these guys are drinking killer, like old Barbarescos. And they're like, they're sophisticated diners because they've seen it all. One of the things about, you know, Babo and Lupa and Del Posto, when rockers come around on tour and they're kind of missing Italy, they come to our restaurants and they are so happy. Like, you know, they've seen it all and they like like it a little on the simpler side. So sorry I interrupted you. No, well, so no. who's like who's like your favorite person that's ever like you know somebody like that like a celebrity, a musician, or a movie when star? Who's you... your favorite? Like, what was your favorite guest experience like that? Oh, there's so many. You know, having Bill Clinton in the restaurant is always a joy because everyone just stops. But I must say, Robin Williams used to come in with Billy Crystal, and they would walk in, and literally the whole dining room would listen to them little kibitzing back and forth and then Robin Williams at the end of the meal would always go to the bar and get two bottles of champagne pour a glass for every chef in the kitchen and bring it back to them and of course you will follow him forever because of that you know and 
It's just, it's a remarkable thing to see someone who so loves what they're doing and where they're at as opposed to trying to hide from the public and, you know, pretend they're not there. It's a, it's a remarkable thing. That said, Michelle Obama's been one of my favorite customers because she's just so delightful and she gets it and she's inquisitive and do doesn't mind participating with the restaurant, even though there's 600 security guards right outside the door. <laughs> Have you ever been starstruck? Oh, all the time. I mean, you know. Keith Richards walks into the room, you're like, and then you realize you don't understand what he's saying anyway. So you just, ha, 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 ha. he's fantastic. Or, you know, like, let's see, who else? Like Robert Fripp, King Crimson, one of my all-time favorite guitar players. I love him so much, I don't even know what to say to a guy like that. So I'm just like, Mr. Fripp, I'm a big fan of your work. That's it. Like, we can't possibly have a conversation. Although with a guy like Bono or Michael Stipe, I can have a regular conversation and we can become friends because I don't know what it is. Maybe I held them in a different place. Like, Fripp was so cerebral for me and Starless and Bible Black is such an important piece of my twisted mentality that, you know, like a U2 rattle and hum, like that was so much more of a party scene than a private scene. So like I'm into that in a way that I can converse with, with them. So moving through the lightning rounds. Okay. You have, no, I mean, that's, that's, no, we could, that's, we could stay could, on that. I, could, I mean, yeah, I mean, I could clearly an ask you. Rich your, vein. I want to know more about Bono's glasses. Bono has a lot of glasses <laughs> and he doesn't really give them to anybody but the Pope. <laughs> As a glasses wearer myself, yeah. I feel a strong connection to that. So, Mario, you're at the airport. You have an hour to kill. What's your strategy? What do you do? I try to find one of those massage chairs. I think that's my best way to spend time at the airport if I'm waiting. Like the the mechanical ones? Or no, the ones no, no, no. The, one, the, the ones where the human's sitting. Okay, yeah. Right? They, they, it's, it, maybe it's vibrating. I don't know. They're doing such a good <laughs> job. I feel pretty good about it. But I try to do something that I wouldn't do somewhere else. I generally don't go for the food and beverage unless I'm in Chicago, in which case I go to to Rick's place, which is, you know, the, the Frontera guys do, the, and I'm, in my opinion, the best airport food situation, except there is an oyster bar at the New Orleans airport. So in which case, I know that if it's Apalachicola season, which means you're not in a month without an R, then you can have pretty good oysters and some pretty interesting things. Not to diminish the greatness of whatever I haven't spoken about, but those are the ones that I love the most. That's a very diplomatic answer. Um, if you show up at the perfect bar and there's the perfect bartender and the perfect spirits and wines and beers on offer and your perfect drink is sitting there waiting for you. What is it? Depends on the season, but I am a big fan of a classic old fashioned. I think that's a good way to judge a bartender because they all would love to make it something more important, but this is a sugar cube, a muddled orange slice, really good bourbon, and maybe just a little bit of water. Crushed ice means I'm in the wrong place, right? But like they don't all have to have those two inch perfect glass cubes. Like, I'm all right with three or four regular cubes, but crushed ice on, on any bourbon is just a bad idea. Unless we're making bourbon Slurpees, in which case I'm all right with it, right? <laughs> right. It's, there's something but to be said. But that's a different game. Right, exactly. No. If you could bring any now-closed restaurant back to life for just one meal, what would it be? I would bring whatever Jean-Louis Paladin did. I think he was, uh, he was removed from us much too quickly. He was one of the most talented and, for me, visceral and guttural chefs. Like, he got the dirty part of the snail and the burgundy. Like, he just, he was one of my faves, but he's long gone. I would, uh, secondarily, I would say Stars, because Stars was fundamentally, if you look at all of my restaurants, something in each one of them is a direct copy from Stars. How many meals did you have at Stars? Oh, hundreds. Really? I lived in San Francisco for three years when it was in its heyday. And we would go in, in in, you know, golf clothes. We would go in in shorts after work. We would, I would never put on a suit. But I mean, like it was everything from tuxedos to surf shorts there. And I mean, you would meet everybody from San Francisco. And it was just, it was so delicious and so 
gastronomically perfect. And Mark Franz and Dave Robbins and Jeremiah, and they were all on fire. And you just, I just, I just love watching them. Like I'd watch them at the end of the night, take their inventory and figure out what the menu was going to be the next day because it was always changing. It was just, it was so influential to me. And Jeremiah is still one of my heroes. Are the the homages like literal direct objects or things in each one no, of your No, just feelings. Just like- you know, like the loudness of the bar, the the comfort of being able to eat at the bar, the the simplicity of the design. You know, the the kind of way we operate our menus. I mean, you know, Stars had sometimes just massive menus, and then the next day it would be completely different. And you were just, it was always interesting to watch the scallops come in, be this, then the next thing, and then the next thing smoked on the fifth day. And it was just like, it was it was fascinating to watch them operate both the business, but also the juiciness of having something feel so new every day. Do you binge watch TV shows? And what was the last thing you binge watched? If so. I, I try to, but like at the end of the night, when my son, like I, I do it with one of my sons who's home and, and he, we, we started watching, um, what's the one with Bill Macy and... Uh, uh, shameless. Shameless. Like I watched Shameless for like the first three seasons and then they all get ahead of me. And all of a sudden, like, I'm not binge watching by myself. I want to do it with somebody. So they're on season five and I'm like, I just bail out. That said, I, I like the idea of binge watching. I just don't really, I, I, every time I get the urge to watch TV three days in a row, one or two of those days, I'll read a book. I'm reading 32 Yokes right now. I think it's fantastic. I think Eric's one of the smartest guys. So that'll take me like four days. Then I'll watch a little TV. Then I'll pick up, pick up another book. I was going to ask what's a, what's the best book you've read lately, but you anticipated uh, you my know, question. You um, know, Ancient Minstrels, I think. Jim Harrison's last book might be my favorite book. Of all time? Two. No. His, of all time, it's a toss-up between Sound and the Fury and his book called Road Home. Sound and the Fury is solid. I've never read any Morrison, though. No? No, I, sh- I guess I should. Right I'm now. Missing out on the canon. <laughs> so, Mario, if you couldn't do what you do, which is, you know, a multifaceted life and career, like, what would you do? Like, what's the, like, the career path, like, you know, you would alternately? Well, I always thought that I wanted to be a marine biologist. And then I met organic chemistry. And I studied as hard as I could, which I didn't have to do very much in college. Like, I was a good student, and if I read the material and went to class, I could pretty much get a B plus. Organic chemistry, I studied my ass off, and I got a 71, which is just two points above not getting any credit for it. And I realized I couldn't be a marine biologist, but if I could do something that would only involve a small part of my brain and perhaps use it in a way that would be perfect, I would be a pool boy in Malibu. That sounds kind of like a dream. It would be a perfect. I would surf in my spare time and I would shuck oysters and go abalone diving. Like imagine the if you only had to work six or seven hours a day for somebody to keep their pool clean or a group of people to keep their pool clean. All the things you could do. Like when I don't have to chew for a week, I'm so productive. Like I have from seven in the morning till one in the afternoon, like unstructured. And it's amazing how many things I can get going and how much trouble I can cause in my world. Oh, last question. Um, If someone tells you they want to be you when they grow up, what's the piece of advice you'd give them? I tell them, study hard, pay attention, get the best grade you can, read outside of whatever you have to study, go to college, study something that has nothing to do with the trade, and then talk to me after that. Strong advice. Awesome. Well, Mario, thank you so much for coming by the Eater Upsell. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a big fan of Eater. I read it every day. Oh, we're a big fan of you. We eat at your restaurants whenever we can. I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mario Vitale. You can check out more of his stuff on Twitter and on ABC and at the bookstore and in many locations around America. And in real life. And in real life. There I am. (laughs) He'll be in the restaurant. Tooling around on his Vespa. (laughs) Thanks, Mario. My pleasure. 
The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's exquisitely beautiful Midtown Manhattan studios. Your hosts are Greg Morbido and me, Helen Rosner. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our studio team is Miles Yule and Alex Ulreich. And of course, the most important person involved in the creation of all of this is you. Yes, you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being who you are. <laughs>